Software Engineering Radio Episode 49, Dynamic Languages for Statically Typed Minds. Welcome listeners, this is another episode of Software Engineering Radio. In this episode we are talking to Niklas Nielsen about uh, dynamic languages for people who have a background in more static languages such as Java. We've recorded this episode at the Uppsala conference in I think end of October 2006 in Portland, Oregon. Um, the quality of this recording is not that great. The reason is that I forgot to recharge the batteries of my recording uh, device. So we had to record it directly on the notebook. And that meant that we only have one microphone. And that means that we have to pass around the microphone between interviewer and interviewee. That's why you can hear these microphone rumbles from time to time. Still, I think the quality is absolutely acceptable. And the content is interesting enough to not throw it away just because of the recording quality. So, Niklas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And maybe we start by you introducing yourself a little bit, your background, and then we'll delve into the topic. My name is Niklas. Uh, I'm uh, consulting, doing education, coaching stuff and uh, on the west coast of Sweden. My background is from the beginning in embedded systems, doing a lot of uh, automation, uh, automotive stuff. Uh, telematic stuff where uh, telecom industry meets the vehicle industry and uh, since the west coast of Sweden is uh, kind of like Detroit in uh, Sweden we have a lot of vehicle industry so even though I tend to turn up on the service side more and more it's still vehicle industry okay so let's look at the topic um, if we talk about dynamic languages what are some of the typical languages um, that come to your mind and which one is going to be the language we're going to talk about mostly in this presentation or in this uh, episode and uh, dynamic language that I've uh, that I did some real work in was uh, Python and um, before that I mean still people and including me were doing a lot of JavaScript which uh, of course, it's a dynamic language, but uh, it turned out to be much, much harder since all the browsers did not follow standards very well. Um, but uh, in 2002, here at Uppsala, actually, I uh, had a very really good experience attending uh, Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt's uh, Ruby in a Day tutorial. So we're probably going to talk most about Ruby today. And uh, other languages that I think will be very interesting to follow is Groovy. Some people say that Groovy is dead before it's born, more or less. But I'm not sure. I mean, since it's a dynamic language backed by Sun, I think that may be a good thing. Okay, then. Um, just a another remark um, how this episode ties in with some of the other episodes we already have and we will have. So uh, we talked about Ruby in previous episodes more on a general uh, note. And, 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 and this episode will focus on some of the programming language features that you'll typically find in dynamic languages such as Ruby. And then in a subsequent episode, we'll talk about uh, domain-specific languages implemented in Ruby with using, uh, using some of these features we're going to talk about today. So this ties in nicely into some of the other episodes we've already had and we will have. So some of the more interesting or advanced features. What are, what are the, the key features there? I think the first thing that you notice is uh, the blocks, which is uh, the possibility to pass around code to uh, to other methods. 
in Java, you can uh, use the anonymous you know, classes and stuff to do things like that, but it's it's much more awkward, and the syntax really doesn't look as nice at all. The other things that really is different when coming from a Java perspective is that nothing is ever closed. You can open up a class anytime. You can mess around with it. You can add stuff. You can remove stuff. Things that uh, people do in Java and have to do in Java by bytecode weaving, uh, surgically going in, adding stuff which BCEL, CGLib, and all these things are doing. It's not that people can't do it in Java. It's just that it's really, really hard. If you have a dynamic language, that's no problem. You just do it. It's, it doesn't look any different than any normal code at all. And that's the main and largest difference to me, the metaprogramming stuff and that everything is always open. And that's what people think, from a static point of view, is really, really dangerous. So maybe let's start with one feature that is the typing itself. How do you... What is the difference between... Um, dynamic typing and static typing and, and what is stack typing? The first thing that you see is that you don't have to specify types that you don't uh, specify what type uh, your references are but that's just, uh, that's just uh, the surface let's say you have a, a, a number 100 million or something like that and uh, that's, a, that's a fixed num in Ruby which is like an integer in, in Java let's say you multiply that by itself in Java, that would just wrap, and there would be some really strange number that isn't, it's not, just not correct. It will wrap several times, of course. But in Ruby, it will realize that, hmm, this is too large. Let's make this a larger type. Let's make this a big num. And something that I actually found out yesterday that I didn't think Ruby did, but it's something that we found out during the, during the tutorial, that was if you divide it again, it will actually turn it down to fix num again. So it's not just that you don't have to specify the type, it's also that an object can dynamically change its type at runtime. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's what it's doing. And that's, uh, if, if the environment realizes that this type is not longer sufficient, it will change. And just to make this clear to our listeners, um, this is not the same as like polymorphism in Java. Um, in Java, what you can, of course, do, you can have a, a reference that is uh, typed statically to some class, and then you can polymorphically let it point to subclasses of that class. But you can never take a given object and change the dynamic type, its real class at runtime. You can always cast it, but that's just changing the reference type. It's not changing the object's nature itself. Exactly. That's uh, If you look at uh, some of the uh, classic object-oriented examples, when you have something, some object that you want to change role, stuff like that, that's really hard because then you really have to change, you really have to change type, and that's, that's harder in static languages. So that means also that... Um, if you do this, then you probably, I mean, as we all know, you don't have any compiler checks whether um, types are compatible. And you probably also don't have a compiler check that checks whether if you invoke a method on some object, whether the respective class has this method. And that opens some interesting possibilities with regards to the method not found, or what is it called in Ruby. So can you talk about this a little bit? Um, and maybe, yeah, so what does some of, some of the tricks you can do with that? I think that's where people think is uh, the, the largest drawback too. Because since it's really, really hard to uh, figure out what the type is, it's really, really hard to figure out what methods are on the object you're currently working on for your tool. Which means that the IntelliSense uh, code completion stuff is, is gone. It's really, really hard to make a tool that, that, that helps that. 
That said, uh, when, you, when, you, when you talk to an object, you don't talk about interfaces in the normal sense. You, you speak about, the question is not, are you of this type? The question is, can you respond to the messages I will send you, which, is, which equals to, to the methods I will call? Will you respond to those? Uh, can you do anything with, with those? From the highest point, you can ask an object what methods, what messages it can respond to. But you usually don't, not too often at least. It's, you just send the message. In a static language, you will start out by looking in the V table, and, and the caller will decide if the callee, the one who accepts the message, or should accept the message, if it can do it. So the caller or rather the compiler will make the choice. In a dynamic language, you will just send a message to the object, and you will see what happens. Usually it will answer, since it's, you usually don't pass around, around the wrong objects. But it may be so that it doesn't have that method. Then the object itself can it will get an uh, it, will, it will it will get the message that oh here is a message and you do not you, you can't respond to it. So you will end up in a special method called method missing. Method missing takes a few arguments. One is the name of the method, and then it gets the arguments in the end, which makes it possible to parse the method name, which makes, for instance, the trick that you can do finder methods, find by name and address, even though there is no find by name and address method. But if the object has the pro proper properties, it can decide for itself that, yes, I can construct some clever answer from the question I just got, and doesn't have to, can't even be checked in compile time. So we already mentioned before that there is this feature of code blocks, so... Um Probably most people know the command pattern um, from from Java programming or something. So, can you elaborate what a, what a block is and and also what closures are? And and <laughs> we talked about that before the before the recording here. And and maybe elaborate on on some of the differences or or what you think the differences are and some of the conflicts or discussions around that. I think this is an interesting topic because most people probably don't know the difference. And if we don't know it either, no problem. But uh, let's elaborate on that a little bit. What is a block? What is a closure? A block in Ruby is uh, is just a, co a block of code that uh, it's dereferenced. Uh, it's uh, not dereferenced, but uh, you have you, you put it in, uh, in into a curly braces or between do end. It's a block of code that you can send it to other to other methods. Usually, when you call a, a library, some some library method, it uh, it can take a block of code that it will execute. It's it's callback mechanism. To illustrate that, if you have a, uh, an array of elements and you want to multiply all the elements by two, instead of writing an explicit loop and then doing the multiplication yourself, you just tell the array to iterate and pass in the behavior that it should kind of apply to all the elements. So you write a piece of code block that has a, basically that says multiply the argument to the block by two, and then you tell the array to apply it to all of its elements. So you, you pass in a piece of behavior as an object itself, right? Exactly. And uh, if, if you look at Java, for instance, the, the, I think the most uh, common example is uh, comparison. When you do sorting and stuff like that, you have to pass in a little class instead of just a little method or a little code block that will say which object is larger than the other object from this specific perspective. A block is probably the only thing in Ruby that's not an object, except when you want it to be, because then it will turn into something that Ruby calls a proc. 
it will it binds to the local variables and you can pass it around as an object with there's n actually no difference from any other objects in that sense and uh, that was to me what closures were code block bound to local variables that you actually can pass around but i got some really really interesting questions on the tutorial so i realized that i probably don't know there's probably even more differences that that uh, that's uh, so far lost on me but i'm going to find eric Meyer later and i'm going to ask him uh, what the difference really is, because he said at the speaker Zhao that he he really hopes that Ruby will get closures right in the next release, and I'm going to ask what he really meant. Yeah, that's <laughs> the, the discussions between language geeks. So, <laughs> yeah, to to get back to this bound to local variables, that means that if you define a block at some point. And during the definition of this block, you reference variables in the environment of that block. Then if you pass the block around or make it into a proc object and uh, execute it later, the environment is the, the environment of the time when you defined the block. So it kind of remembers the environment from the place of its definition, right? Because I think that is a very cool thing. Precisely. And that's, uh, that's what uh, the functional languages has done all the time. Because that makes it rather easy to, uh, to create a function that creates functions. You can, have, you can create a function that has some variable points, and then you can pass in arguments to that function, and it, you'll get another function that, is, uh, that has those variables, that remembers those, and really you create functions that create other functions. You write code that write code. So as far as I remember, isn't that called currying or something? Yeah, that's what uh, they call currying in functional languages. So that means if you have, uh, for example, a function that takes two arguments, x and y, and, for example, takes x to the, to the yth power, to the power of y is probably the, the correct <laughs> term, then you can bind y, for example, to 2 and create a function that only takes one parameter, x, and uh, basically takes it to the, to the power of 2 and take that as a separate function. So you, you partially bind the values, right? Yes, but yeah, that's exactly what they do, and it's, uh, I think it's a rather, uh, rather nice thing. And uh, as far as I know, there's uh, only that's only possible in function languages and uh, some of the dynamic languages. Yeah, I know it from, from Lisp, and, and I think it's possible in Smalltalk. No, I don't think. Anyway, I'm not an expert there. Um, okay, so that that was blocks and closures. Um, does Ruby also have continuations? Ruby doesn't have continuations right now, but. Uh, if the rumors are correct, they will be completely removed in Ruby 2. They will just be gone. So they're, they're removing continuations? So uh, maybe, maybe, can you please br briefly explain what a continuation is before we <laughs> discuss about whether it's there or whether it's going to be removed? Continuations is one of the things that I tend to think is the hardest thing to get my head around because it's kind of like time machines, like having separate stacks and stuff and you, you go back and forth in time. Jim Wyrick uh, made a really, really nice illustration of, of continuations at RubyConf last year where he used Zelda. When he, uh, he used, uh, I don't know the, the character's name is Zelda, but he was, uh, first he was uh, 11 years old, and then he went to the Magic Stone and he turned 18, and then he ran around and was 18 for a while, and then he came back, uh, he did stuff, and then he came back and he was 11 again and continued where, where, he, where he left off. So uh, continuations is... Uh, the the only killer feature, there there are not many uses that uh, seem to be very widespread, 
it seems to be uh, the continuation frameworks for uh, for web applications. Seaside is the the only really uh, well used example I've ever heard of continuations. Yeah, there's also Rife, I think, in the Java world, but it's still kind of a niche thing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. This this mechanism obviously makes a lot of trouble for language makers. So Matt's just said, I'm going to take it out in Ruby 2 because it, it makes it makes more stuff hard than uh, than the use actually is for it. So I'm, I'm trying to give an example. I might be wrong here and we might cut this out if I'm talking complete nonsense. Um, if, if you have um, something that creates a sequence of numbers, okay, a sequence generator. Then what you can do with continuations is you can basically implement the the, the generator in a way that says basically a, a for loop counting from from one run to five million, and then um, you basically tell the so and the body of the for loop would be a statement that many people call yield, and that basically says return the current value yield. The, number, the current number of the, of the iterator, like yield i if you iterate over the variable i. So you would yield, yield i, that means somebody who calls this function give me the next value would get this return value, like 5 in the sequence. And then um, the, the continuation kind of remembers that it's currently at this place, so it's like a temporary return. And if you call this function again, it continues from there, counts one up, and returns the next value. So that's the, the, the kind of canonical example that I know for, for continuations. And yeah, it sounds like a nice feature, but I haven't. It's not in many languages, as we all know. No, I think I think you're I think you're right, but uh, it's it's hard to think in in temporal in temporal times in that way, and that's I think that's probably the main reason why it's it's not uh, used that much. Okay, let's let's get into more uh, solid ground. Open classes. What is that? Let's say you have a class. Let's say you would like to, uh, for instance. In the Java world, you would like to add an aspect. You would like to add an after or before aspect. To do that, you have to use special tools that do byte code weaving and stuff. If you would do that in a dynamic language, you will just open up the class. In Ruby, we just we just type class and the class name again, and then you will redefine the method. If you want to keep the old method, you just alias it and give it a new a new name that you hopefully remember then. And then write your what's gonna the new method that's gonna do stuff before or after and then it may or may not call the the old method, depending on if it's if it's guarding stuff or if it's just uh, doing some logging stuff before. So you just you can open up classes, you can add stuff to it. You can uh, you can add methods, you can remove methods, you can take out member variables, you can you can actually say in runtime that, oh I'd like to I'd, I'd like to extend this clause. In runtime. So if, if it implemented in Java without tools like aspect J, what you'd do is probably you'd extend from the class and override the respective method, do some stuff, and then call a super method. But the difference is, of course, that this creates a new class, a different one. And if people want to use objects, they have to make sure they're actually instantiating this new type. So in Ruby, what you can then do is you can basically you can spread the definition of a class over several artifacts. So you can r- open up a class means you just add or remove to an existing class, right? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it works. And uh, since everything is interpreted, it's, uh, whenever it encounters this new definition, it will just start using it from, from that point. So that, that also answers another question that I wanted to talk about, and that is uh, the importance of aspect-oriented programming in, in, in dynamic languages. As some of you might know, 
the history of aspect J and AOP is that it has historically come from meta object protocols. So one could agree, uh, argue that that aspect oriented programming is kind of the stuff you've always done in dynamic languages hacked in a way so that it's applicable to static languages. So um, so am I right in thinking that AOP isn't such a big buzzword in the dynamic language community? Yes, um, you you can you don't hear that discussion much at all. There's actually an aspect R, and it's a, a guy in Gothenburg uh, whom I, I just met. Uh, he's actually been involved in that, so uh, it's going to be really interesting to uh, to speak to him about this. But uh, since since you do most or even all of the tricks with standard language features, there's not much of a discussion actually. So it's just part of the of the language and not a big a big deal. Another thing that I would guess is that testing is probably even more important than in static languages because the compiler doesn't do uh, you know type checking so you'd have to do a lot more testing is that correct? No. Since you're supposed to do that testing anyway. So you're not supposed to do more testing. You had you you were supposed to do it anyway because if you just if you just think that the compiler will save you then then you will be in trouble anyway. Okay, let's put it that way. You rely more on the fact that you have more tests because the compiler... I mean, there are obviously some errors the compiler catches. So it doesn't do that in dynamic languages. So test-driven development is... is, Okay, it's not more important, but uh, it's it's critical that you have sufficient coverage. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, I'm just kidding. But uh, still, yes, the tests help. But that's also... That takes... uh, when I, when, I, when I first started out with dynamic languages, when you started playing with JavaScript, I think the the, most, the biggest pain was that since it was really hard to test, since it was in the browser, you you had problems uh, finding those stuff that the compiler actually helped you with. When I encountered Python and Ruby four or five years ago, then I was already test-driven, so I, did, I didn't have that problem anymore. That problem just went away, but it took a while before I realized that it went away because of the tests. Because the tests don't only check that I, I'm working with the correct types, it's also checking all the other stuff, of course, that are actually using the right values and things that the compiler can never, ever do. This brings us to the, to the next point, which is, um, I mean, we named this episode basically in a way that suggests that we kind of want to convince static language users to at least take a serious look at dynamic languages. So what do you think is the best process, the best, you know, set of steps or whatever to to go from static programming to dynamic programming. From what you just said, I take that it's a good idea to to, for example, get used to test driven development because that's something that'll help you use dynamic languages. Are there other um, things that you'd recommend? You know, like a team lead to to do in order to convince a team um, that 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 dynamic languages are great. So, what's the process of going from static to dynamic? I think first of all, like you said, test, tests tests are important. But also, since with like with any new technology, you, you should just d- start doing a mission critical p- project in this way. What we started out doing was uh, creating tools because you always have tools and you have you you have your build chains that do this and that. And uh, usually, do have to write some some special code. And writing ant tasks in Java is, is actually not that fun. Try using stuff like JRuby and things like that to just uh, try to sneak it in. If you want to try to do what I what I appreciate more and more is uh, these small applications that normally took 
a couple of days to, to do. When you get a little bit fluent in uh, in dynamic languages, and if you find some some uh, net, some frameworks that can help you, there are there are people starting discussing throwaway throwaway software, it's software that you write that's gonna you're gonna use for for a week or so, and then you're gonna throw it away. And you usually you usually do stuff like that by hand instead. You you don't you don't write a program to do it because it's the investment is too high. But let's say that the investment is much lower. Start out playing with dynamic languages to do do stuff like that that really can do small incremental stuff for you, and then when you get more confident, try to use. Uh, if you let's say you're in a in .dot .net environment, play with Iron Python. Iron Python is is .dot .net. Iron Python works in .dot .net, and uh, .net is meant to be f done for several languages. Use C Sharp for 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 some stuff. Use Iron Python for other stuff. Use Visual Basic, Visual Basic where it, where it's the most elegant solution. Try to be more pragmatic and use more than one language instead of saying we are a Java shop, we are a .NET shop. So how far along are those uh, implementations of uh, dynamic languages on the mainstream platforms, be it Java or .NET? Iron Python is released uh, in uh, at least version 1.0. I think there may even be uh, an upgrade to that. And I mean, it's backed by Microsoft, and uh, the creator works for Microsoft nowadays. He's also the same guy who wrote Python. JRuby is uh, coming along. It's, uh, I think it's in version 0 0.8, 0 0.9, something like that. I think it's 0 0.9. And uh, Sun just uh, hired the two main developers. So JRuby has, compared to CRuby, some really interesting features, and it's that it actually uses Java, Java's real threads. Java native threads, which makes threading in JRuby possibly even better than in CRuby because that's one of the, the weakest spots. And still, there are some features that are, that are lacking that uh, CRuby can do, but it's it's really coming close. Just an editorial note: uh, This uh, session is recorded at Uppsala 2006 in October, end of October in 2006 in Portland, Oregon. So. Um, by the time you'll hear this on the podcast, a statement like "Sun has just hired people" might not be completely in time. So, um, so just as a remark. Um, so, if we look at JRuby, do you know whether it's actually an interpreter of Ruby implemented in Java, or is it that Ruby is basically compiled down to bytecode? So, is it a native implementation of Ruby on the VM, or is it just writing the interpreter in, in you know? As it happens, Java. Uh, as far as I understood, it's a, it's a complete rewrite. It's uh, rewritten from the from the ground up. There's there's nothing uh, nothing left. So the so the point is that okay. So that means that you can probably integrate. You can probably use Java classes from within a, a Ruby program, a JRuby program, and the other way around. Exactly, and uh, they 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 can speak to uh, to Enterprise Java Beans, and there are examples of. Uh, Calling all sorts of strange Java stuff, and uh, I think they even got uh, Ruby on Rails working on the JVM. Okay, and and I think the question I asked before about whether it's an interpreter in Java or whether it's using native Java features is probably I, sh I should have thought before about before I asked the question because all those meta programming features which we'll talk about in a subsequent episode with Obi Fernandez, uh, you can't do that in Java. You can't at runtime modify classes easily. So that's probably the reason why it's, in quotes, just a Ruby interpreter written in Java running on the VM. Yes, just. 
Yeah, I said, I said in quotes. So, and, and on the .NET platform, I've always heard these, these talks about the .NET platform being better suited for implementing multiple languages compared to the JVM because JVM, the JVM has always been or has been implemented with the idea of running Java, which is a statically typed object-oriented language. Um, and rumors have it that the, the .NET VM, CLR, um, is implemented in a way that it, for example, supports functional languages natively. There is always this example that it supports tail recursion um, natively. So is Iron Python uh, implemented as a native CLR language or is it a Python interpreter written in C Sharp or whatever? I have no clue at all, actually. Not at all. Uh, but the the rumor, when speaking of what you said, that the rumor is that the CLR is better is... I don't know how true this is, but uh, the creator of Jython when it was uh, about to it was about to write a paper about uh, how bad the CLR was for dynamic languages, but he he thought that he should try first. So he started playing with it and realized that it was probably much better than the JVM. And uh, well, now he's hired by Microsoft, and uh, Sun is playing uh, catch up and adding adding more and more stuff to the JVM to to make it easier to do dynamic languages. So should people use uh, JRuby or Groovy? That depends a lot on what you want to do. The the problem I have when coming to JRuby and Python and Jython and uh, Iron Python and stuff like that is that you have two libraries. You have the the native li- the the normal libraries for for Python and Ruby, and then you encounter the, the .NET or the Java library, and it's like the old thing when you program C++ in uh, in Microsoft MFC environments and stuff. Should you use the Microsoft strings or should you use the the should I use the standard C++ strings or and how do I do all the conversion stuff? You're back there again when you when you run a language on on such a rich library. So you're saying the real issue is um, today for people to learn platforms and and frameworks and not languages. So the language is ultimately not that important. I think languages are really, really important, actually. But uh, la- the the problem with switching languages is you have to you have to rethink some concepts, and that's hard. That's that's the the main uh, the main aha things. But when when you're done that, then you still have six months of learning libraries before you you really feel that you are even close to productive. So that's that's the that's a, a hurdle that I really would try to figure out a good way to get around. Okay, so I think uh, this wraps it up, more or less. So anything else you want to say? Is like some, some, some pearls of wisdom that you'd like to leave with our listeners? No, I'm sorry, I have no pearls of wisdom at all. But uh, there are a lot of things in, in these languages that I like, and uh, the metaprogramming stuff is uh, really, really interesting, and uh, I really look forward to, to listening to the pod- podcast with, uh, with Obi about the DSLs and the metaprogramming stuff, because uh, I heard that he's done some really interesting DSL stuff. And... Uh, I really hope people just, instead of being so afraid and saying that, uh, oh, this is this seems dangerous, I think uh, a lot of the discussion, we, not a lot of the discussion, but some some of the comments that we had uh, on the tutorial was uh, spe- specifically about the duck typing, that you don't know who you're calling and how, how do you know that the, the ones that should respond to this message really can respond to this message. I feel that these are exactly the same arguments that we had for polymorphism 10, 15 years ago. So let's not let's just not keep repeating the same arguments every time we have a new cool technology. Just play with it and see if it's really, really that horrible. Thanks, Niklas, for being on the show. Thank you very much. It was fun. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want to get more information about Software Engineering Radio or if you want to give us feedback, please go to our website at se-radio.net. You can also contact the team at team at se-radio.net, although we prefer entries in our comments system on the website so other people can see what you think. Software Engineering Radio wants to thank Henning Pauli for the intro and outro music, as well as Lipson for providing the bandwidth. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, is licensed under Creative Commons license. See the Software Engineering Radio website for details.